open our Bibles this evening, shall we, to Genesis chapter 2. We have spent the first couple of weeks on our in-depth walk through this book in chapter 1, where God gives to us his work of creation in the heavens and in the earth and in the inhabiting of them. We will read in verse 1 of chapter 2 in a few moments that the heavens and the earth and all of the host of them was finished. And so from God the creator in chapter 1 who made all that we see and know to chapter 2 where the Lord becomes a gardener and a surgeon and a matchmaker. Chapter 1 is kind of the wide angle view of all that God did. Chapter 2 is kind of the macro lens, the, the zoom lens where the Lord especially pulls in on the sixth day of creation in much greater detail because you are and I, and I am his crowning achievement and his love. I just want to back up for a couple of minutes back to chapter 1 verse 24 and kind of move forward since this is the, the sixth day and that's exactly what the subject of chapter 2 is all about and we'll get through chapter 2 I think this evening. Um, we mentioned I think last two, and, and by the way, verse 25, it, it, there's one of those phrases in there that says that God looked and saw all that he made and he saw it was good. You read that six times in the creation story. <clears throat> by the time he gets finished in verse 31, when all is finished, the Lord looked and saw that it was very good. And yet tonight we're going to read in chapter 2, verse 18, when, it looked, when, when the Lord took a look at Adam and he went, yeah, that's not good, that man should be alone, well before sin and the fall. In verse 24 and verse 25, we mentioned last week that both man and, and the beasts, if you will, were made on the same day. The cattle speaks of domestic animals when you read uh, of cattle in the scriptures, creeping things you know about. The word beasts is usually the word for wild animals, and then there is man himself. In verse 26 and in verse 27, the Lord's name there is Elohim. It is a plural noun, if you will. Any kind of I am at the end of a Hebrew name, it makes it a masculine plural. If there is an O-T at the end of a word or a name in Hebrew, it is usually always the female plural. And so the Lord declares in verse 26, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image and his likeness, he created him, and it uses the singular noun for the Lord. So <clears throat> early on, chapter 1, God speaks of himself and already gives to us this insight into the unique kind of oneness of God. And it's a challenge always to your understanding right from the beginning, but the Lord doesn't seek to explain it, but he wants to lay it out before you. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse for in the Shema, the declaration is, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And the word Lord or, or one that is used, there is a Hebrew word, echat. Now, echat is a word that literally means compound unity. You might say, well, we have one basketball team. It has a lot of people on it. Or one baseball team, where there's nine people on the field. But it is one team. It is echat. And that is really the word that is used when you read the Lord our God is one Lord, echat. God existing as three people in one. It is more than you can handle. It is a compound unity. The triunity of God, the word trinity really isn't in the Bible, is that God exists as one God in three distinct persons. 
and it's imponderable. I mean, try to figure it out. You won't. You know, I've heard all of the explanation using every part of, you know, clever analogy to try to help you to wrap your mind around it, but I don't get it. But I know that it's true, and, and God reveals himself that way, and, and, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they only have all of the attributes that God has. <clears throat> so God inexplicably places this right into chapter 1, just as you're beginning to read your Bible, that you might know in his image that you have been made in his image. And the question becomes, and I think we ended with it last week, what does it mean to be made in his image? Unlike all the had created, man alone is made in God's image. The animals, not. From a mental standpoint, mentally, we alone can reason, draw conclusions, apply logic, think for ourselves. That makes you different from all of creation around you. Animals cannot do that. No, no matter how often I am convinced that my dog understands and agrees with me, I realize he's just after cookies and a walk, and that's pretty much it. And the minute I'm out of food, he's out of attention span. He just don't go, he'll go from me to my wife. If she's still eating, I'm done, oh, you're done, and, and he's over here. It's just the instinct in which he was created. We are made tripartite, if you will. Paul mentions to the Thessalonians that, that you know, our spirit, soul, and body should be preserved until the coming of the Lord Jesus. And, and just like the Lord, you know, we have three parts, if you will. And not just flesh, not just consciousness, but the ability to spiritually connect with God, to hear his voice, to agree with his ways, and to be led of his spirit. That's something that God gives to us. We have the ability for self-determination, to choose our own destiny, to have emotion and a mind that and an ability to gather information and knowledge, if you will, to make choices, and God will hold us accountable for those because we have been given that ability. The problem for us is that the image of God in us is greatly tarnished by sin. In fact, uh, his image becomes truly faint oftentimes in the world around us, even as you get to chapter 3 and you see sin enter the picture, and the whole picture clouds over. It isn't as clear as it was before. But if you want to see what God fully intended for man, look at his son. Look at Jesus. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen the heart and the ways and the plans of God. He is perfect and flawless and sinless, and one day he will come and bring us to himself, and then we will fully reflect his image. We'll, we'll see him even as we are known, we'll know him. Notice in verse 28 that man is given a very unique relationship to God. The Lord, after he finishes his creation, says to man, go forward and multiply and be fruitful and subdue the whole earth. The word subdue is a word that means to make subject or to make subservient, if you will. The word dominate or have dominion means to subjugate or to be in charge, if you will. It's almost like the Magna Carta from the Lord for research, for development, for his permission to harness the full potential of the benefits that we have being made in God's image and being given oversight of the world, if you will. Um, and that's kind of part of being in his image. We have the ability to do so. We, we mentioned to you last week as we finished the chapter, <clears throat> verse 29 and verse 30, that originally all of the animals and men were herbivores. They, we were, 
vegetarians. If you are, you should read chapter 9, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, where you'll find me um, eating meat <laughs> with restrictions sometimes for the blood, much later under the law for certain animals as well, that were really not healthy for uh, man. So chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all of the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, means to set it apart, because it is in it he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. Now, these first three verses could easily have been found in chapter 1. They do seem to end the thought. Uh, man did chapter division. That's not inspired. You won't find any of those in the original text. Uh, chapter division were just to help you find your way around. But they do seem to have concluded the story of salvation, if you, or of creation, if you will. But on day seven, we read, God rested. I don't think he was tired. Pretty sure he didn't need a break. But the way that it is presented in the context, it would tell us that God was finished with his creative work. It was accomplished, and nothing else needed to be done. The rest of God tells us he's satisfied. All that he wanted to make, he made. The word rest is Shabbat, or Shabbat, if you will. It literally means to desist, or to cease, or to stop. Soon when sin is found, Something else begins to happen in the earth because of sin. You find this great, gradual kind of deterioration of everything that God had made. It's the, it's the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy sets in, if you will. And the process of decay, decay like a, a giant unwinding clock, things just begin to fall apart and get worse. Scientists tell us that the sun loses 4.3 uh, million tons of mass every second of the day. That, that's not retrievable. It, it eventually would run out. We know that life will not wind down completely, for the Lord has promised to come, to take us to be with him, to return and to reign upon the earth, to uh, subsequently reign for a millennial, a thousand years, and after that thousand years, the heavens and the earth as we know them will be destroyed, burned up, if you will, and they will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth, no longer subject to sin's decay. They will be eternal. But at least where we're reading, everything at this point has been set in place, all marvelously designed by the Lord to perpetuate itself. The flowers, the plants, the animals, and even man himself can continue to go forward. Man, in his sinful oversight of the environment, has led many species to extinction. Uh, some of them are close, but that isn't the way it is here. So reading this, God was not finished in the sense of there was nothing else for him to do. As Tom mentioned as he was leading us in worship, God was still had plans of salvation and deliverance and all, but what he did in his creative process was finished, which leaves you with some provoking kind of thought-provoking questions. For example, how old was Adam when he was created? I know how old he was when he died because the Bible tells me. But even if he looked 40, he was only a day old, wasn't he? That confuses me. 
or, or the trees that bear seed, which means the tree came first. And by the way, so did the chicken. It came first. Let me solve this for you real quickly. <laughs> you can win a bet, I guess. Was the pine tree already 75 feet tall and did it have rings of, of age in its trunk? Will Adam be the only guy in heaven without a belly button? I don't know. <laughs> or will we even have navels in heaven? Not sure. But I love verse 1. God finished creation. It is finished. One day, years from now, forward in your Bible, this same declaration will be made by Jesus at the cross. It is finished. His redemption for us will be finished. But for now, God admires his finished work with contentment. This is what he wanted to give to man. This is what he intended for it to be like. By the way, ten times in these first two verses, verses two and three anyway, God is referred to by name and by personal pronoun to emphasize that this is his established rest. This belonged to him. This came from him. We read here that he sanctified it, set it apart, that it became a day of rest from labor. There was no command to Adam right now to keep it. Years from now, Jesus will say to the disciples in Mark, I think it's chapter 2, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, this was God's intention for us to rest. Sabbath is for our benefit. By example, God worked six days and rested completely from his work on the seventh. At least in America, for a long time, we used to have five days on, two days off. Europe, for years, has had four days on, three days off. Whatever you might try to work it out and however it works for you, even the days off are usually not at rest. They are filled with either, you know, chores to do or fun to catch up on. The schedule fills itself really quickly, and I suspect, you know, having been made in God's image, that there would be a tremendous benefit to your life and mine to have a day where we didn't do anything, just rested, thought about the Lord, served God, worshiped him, church is a good place to go, and, and just to, to kind of put it on cruise mode, you know, as this Sabbath rest is used by the Lord throughout the Bible, starting here in chapter 2, as a pattern in the word of, of resting from your own labors and relying upon him. <clears throat> Later, it will be a part or an extended part to Israel as a covenant relationship, Exodus chapter 20. But unfortunately, even then, it didn't take long to take this beautiful picture and example of resting on the Lord and turn it into a works rule that no one could follow. And, and the benefit of it is completely lost. The Sabbath requirements under the law to Israel as a nation were never laid upon the Gentile church. Read Acts 15. Acts, uh, yeah, there's three verses, I think, in that, in that discussion there. It was never laid upon any saints, 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 that's not even a word, saints. Unfortunately, and, and, and I should say ultimately rather than unfortunately, the Sabbath rest is ultimately a picture of God's complete work that is finished. And so when you get to the New Testament, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 4, Colossians chapter 2, we are told that Jesus is our Sabbath day rest, that there remains yet a rest for the people of God. And it has everything to do with your working your way to heaven or God providing for you all that is necessary so that there's nothing left for you to do but rest in him. 
And that really becomes the ultimate picture of, of his completed work in Christ. Um, he said, let no man judge you in meat or in drink or holy days or new moons or Sabbath days, for they are just a shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ. And that really ultimately is where it goes. But for now, on the seventh day, the Lord rested. We read in verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the, uh, sorry, the earth and the heavens. Beginning here in verse 4, and I want you to mark that word, Lord God, the one that's all in capitals, the Lord introduces to us a new name for himself. It is God's revelation, right? It is progressive. He wants us to know him. We have seen the name Elohim used in verse uh, chapter 1, and it is always linked to God being our creator. It's a plural noun. It is used about 2,700 times in the Bible. It is always associated with a singular verb, a singular or a singular ad, adverb. Our God is one. He is Elohim. But here we begin to find the capital letters. And they're always, by the way, capital in your Bible when this word or this name is being translated. Uh, and it is always placed before God, or almost always, before Elohim. And it is a representation of four Hebrew letters. We call them a tetragrammaton. It is Y, H, V, H, Yod, He, Vav, He. It is just four letters. And they are uh, impossible to pronounce without the vowel kind of dots or markers above and below the letter. So you're just stuck with four consonants, basically, from an English perspective. This name God will use to reveal himself to us as the God of history or of covenants, that God, in speaking, means what he says. He can be depended upon, especially for us as his people. And in, in use of, of God meeting our needs, this, way, this word literally means God is the becoming one. He will become whatever you need. You need peace, he's your peace. You need provision, he's your provision. You need safety, he'll protect you. And God uses this name constantly to refer to himself in that matter. Like I said, it is always about he being our redeemer, our, our, our deliver, deliverer, if you will. <clears throat> it is always in capital letters. When it is simply Lord, large L, small O-R-D, it is usually the translation of the word Adonai. And Adonai is just a positional authority word. It means he's the Lord, you're not. He's above you, you're below him. He's the Lord, as opposed to this Y-H-V-U-H that we try to give it some name to. Uh, one further understanding, if you will, in the book of Exodus chapter 3, uh, the Lord, in, in speaking to Moses, said uh, as he was sending him forth there, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel, or when you do, say to them, The Lord of your fathers has sent me, and they'll say, Well, what's his name? And what shall I say to them? And the Lord says, you can tell them, I am that I am. I am that I am. And the word haya is to be. It is the word for to be. As this word Yahweh is the first person form of that word, if you will, the Lord declares of, of himself. So this is an e eternal kind of forever name that God uses. He says he'll use it to every generation. I'm the God who, who exists 
before anyone. I am. I, I, not I was, I am. And, and God declares himself to be self-existing and non-contingent. Non-contingent means he's not dependent upon everyone else. You're dependent upon him giving you life. He's not dependent upon anyone. He's the uncaused cause. He's the eternal one. He is the I am. Now, the reason that we have lost the ability to pronounce this word, Y-H-V-H, is that at least for generations, scribes, those who uh, copied over the, the letters of the scriptures, believed that God's name was too holy to ever be pronounced. And so they failed to write it down. They took out whatever we would need to be able to pronounce it correctly. And so um, instead they will use the word Adonai when it wasn't there, or they would use the word Yashem. Yashem just means the name. And so you'll find that oftentimes in Jewish writings. In English you might find the, the G with a line and then the D. Like we're not going to say the name God. We're just going to put a G dash D, if you will. Um, so how do you pronounce this word? Well, a lot of people say it, it, it's where the word Jehovah comes from. The problem in Hebrew, there's not a lot of just. And so other have leaned towards the word Yahweh. Same name, just a difference of pronunciation, if you will. Means the same thing, God the becoming one, the one that would provide all that we need. That he's the Lord who is our overseer, and he's the one that we can depend upon that he's the one of history and of covetous and promises. So it just depends how you go uh, with it. I usually use the name Yahweh only because it fits better into the, the language of Hebrews. I understand it, and I'm not very smart with it, but the things I've read and learned, um, but it doesn't make any difference. You go with whatever you like, just as long as you understand the background. Notice it says here in verse uh, 4 that this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Verse 5 says, before any of plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth there was no man to till the ground but there was a mist that came up from the earth and it watered the whole face of the ground this is an important revelation you should grab a hold of it because according to the Bible the environment into which God introduced his creation including man was a um, an environment without rain there was no uh, rain that would fall upon the earth before the flood. There was an envelope, that's the word the Bible uses, or a cloud, if you will, a canopy of moisture that surrounded the earth. And then there, like I said, no recorded rain until it actually rained. And boy, did it rain when it rained. <clears throat> this envelope of suspended water molecules at the edge of the atmosphere would make the entire earth very lush and very green very temperate on a worldwide scale. There would be no polar ice caps, no violent weather, no uh, winds to speak of. Almost like a greenhouse effect sheltering you from all of the harmful UV rays so you could live a much longer life. When you get to Genesis chapter 6 through about 11, eventually with the flood, this envelope would pop, would, would collapse, would would disappear. God would just let it fold in upon itself, the waters of the deep actually coming up out of the earth as well. <clears throat> and by the breaking up, it accounts for the quick accumulation of water that would cover the earth above the highest mountain on the planet, brought with it a tremendous decrease in life expectancy, 
It went from 910 years before the flood to 120 years after. By the time uh, 1000 BC rolled around and David wrote in the Psalms, he said, if you can make it to 70 or by reason 80 years old, you've done well, the Lord has blessed you. And that 70 to 80 year expected life expectancy in, in developed countries has lasted all of those years for now 3,000 years. It hasn't changed much, if you will, at all. So verse 7 tells us, and the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. <clears throat> a final note tells us clearly that God made man's body as a distinct and separate creation, making any theory of evolution untenable, because God clearly declares, if you believe God's word, that he made you specifically with an intention. The word formed here, yatzer, it means to be a potter who sits at the wheel and molds his creation like an artist who is creating something beautiful. So our Lord and, and made us, and into this vessel, this body in which you live, he breathed the breath of life. From beginning to end, the creation story ascribes these direct acts to God's behavior 46 different times, just so you don't miss it, right? You want to look at the Lord, what does he say and how often does he tell us? Evolutionists would have you believe it was blind forces of chance at work. Let me give you an example of blind forces at work and see what you can do with it. The new Webster's Unabridged Dictionary came out this year, has 2,816 pages, 3,000 illustrations and maps, 140,000 etymologies, 476,000 entries. Do you really think for one minute that that was the result of an explosion at a printing lab? No, and neither are you and I. God formed man out of the dust of the earth. The same 17 elements that you will find in dirt will find in you. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that's just the way it is. <laughs> Psalm 104, you hide your face and we are troubled. You take away our breath and we die. We return to the dust. Psalm 103, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. All go to one's place, all are of dust, and to dust you shall return. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to, the, to God who gave it. When we die, we literally become fertilizer. God is done with the body in which you live. You go back to the soil. Nutrients, chemicals, grass will grow, the cows will eat it, their milk will spread their same nutrients of which you're a part. So if you want to know where you are, you're scattered everywhere. One day the Lord will come and gather us up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think, or yeah, verse 50. 1551, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The word change is alasso in Greek. It means, it means to, to put together in a different form. Gathering together a new body made without hands eternal in the heavens. God will sort it out. 
I've heard from Christians sometimes, oh, I don't want to be cremated. You know, it's not in the Bible. Well, cremation and burial is like 15 years apart. Everything else is exactly the same. So you just, well, it just depends how long you want to wait to become cow fodder. <laughs> but you'll be gone. What do you care? You'll be with the Lord. The word for breath, wind, and spirit in Hebrew is all the same word. It's the word ruach. Ruach. In the New Testament, breath, wind, spirit are all the word pneuma. The breath of God, the spirit of God. The wind blows where it wills. And so this was God's work in creating and giving you life. Verse 8. The Lord God then planted a garden eastward in Eden. Then there he put the man whom he had formed. Where is the Garden of Eden? Here's my answer. Eastward. It's right there in your Bible. Do you see it? By the way, there is more written on this subject of the, of the location of, of Eden than you have time or interest to, to read. Let, let me save you some trouble, or I'll, at least I'll try. Uh, this is antediluvian geography which means that this description, even of these four rivers, took place before the flood, before the catastrophic results of a flood that moved mountains and dug great chasms in the, in, in the world and created new mountains and new uh, rivers. We can, we can only come up geographically from the Bible with some certainty where Eden about existed, the Mesopotamia Delta, if you will, you know, Iran or Iraq in that area today. Verse 9 tells us, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to, to the sight and, and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of that garden, and as was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there are some people, and, and maybe you know some, who believe that if you can change a person's environment, you can change that person. We had some friends that moved to Hawaii a few years ago because they thought it would be a much more peaceful place for their kids. The problem is they had to take their kids with them <laughs> because you can't get away with them yourself. And though it is certainly true that, that being in a Christian home and having a Christian family and having the, you know, that influence can be of great help to you, understand this for sure, though there is a, an advantage According to the Bible, it's the heart that needs to be changed, not the environment. And some of the people who come in the, came in in the more difficult environment, people like Joseph, for example, who should have turned out crazy, was a leader that God used for years. Somebody like Daniel, who's kidnapped from his home as a teenager and forced for the rest of his life to live under someone else's rulership, God just raised up. He is perfectly normal. <laughs> and yet his situation was horrible. And, and was so difficult, you wonder how he survived. It isn't the environment. And here's my argument for you. Man is about to be placed in the most perfect environment imaginable. I mean, he had his favor in every way. There was nothing better than being placed in this garden. Here in, in, in Eden, he will find, we will find man rebelling against God. We will find him transferring kingdoms. We will see him handing over his authority to rule to the devil because of his obedience. He will find sin and death and walk away and out of this place knowing he needs a savior and having a, a cryptic, very cryptic promise from God 
that one day God would come to deliver him. This all happened in the Garden of Eden. You couldn't make a better place. Well, if you go to the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 20, we will read there of the millennial reign of Jesus for a thousand years of life as Jesus would want it. And if you don't like it, it'll be forced upon you because he would have his way. Sin would still exist, but just not very much and not very often. At the end of those thousand years, we read that Satan will be loosed for a short time so that man will be given a choice. Do you want to now run with this devil or do you want to stay with the God who oversaw you for all these years? And remarkably, you will read that many chose the other route rather than walking with the Lord. It isn't your environment. It's the need for your heart to be changed. This was an, an absolute ideal environment. Man's first home was a garden. If you come to know the Lord, your last home will be a city of glory. Now imagine Adam waking up to the splendor of this garden that God had planted. I, can't, I have no idea what this place looked like, but everything I read of it, it must have been quite the place, right? It must have been as beautiful as it could possibly have been. Just to, to kind of move you, the, the greenery, maybe lions running through the trees, I don't know. Eventually he'd name them lions. Notice in verse 9 that the tree of life was in the midst of this garden. You will find it again in Revelation 22 in the New Jerusalem. So this will be around for quite a long time, like forever. And it will be mentioned a couple of times as you read from here to the end of the book. But Eden was planted by God for man. Now we're only told of these two trees in particular, the tree of life, from which you could eat and should eat, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were told not to eat. We read in verse 10, Now the river went out from Eden to water the garden, and there it parted and became four he uh, river heads. The first name was the Pishon. It is the one which scorch, uh, skirts the whole hand of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and the onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Hedekel. It is the one which goes to the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, we know very little about these four rivers. And again, if you just want to read, there is a thousand books that will tell you all about this. We know of the Hedekel, which is the Tigris, at least in modern language. We know that the Euphrates River is still around. But again, because it was before the flood, we have no idea if this was the place that they were at to begin with or whether they had moved. I mean, you put, the, put the, the whole earth underwater and then watch it just drain and a year later see where everything ends up. So with these cataclysmic kind of upheavals, the worldwide flood brought major changes to the earth, brought continental shift, brought the formation of new mountains, eliminated others. So you're kind of left to go, all right, it was over there somewhere because we are on this side of um, the flood. So an ideal place to live in, in the midst of all of this water that provided um, for the plants and for man, verse 15, the Lord took man, he put him into the Garden of Eden and told him to tend and to keep the garden. Adam, Adam is given an ideal job. You're to tend the garden. You're to be a keeper, a guardian of Edom, uh, 
He was given a task. The, the, the term tend here literally means to make it serve you. So Adam was placed in this place in a positive sense, to tap its potential, to use it for good, to discover all of its benefits. He wasn't, he wasn't given the job of pulling weeds and making stuff grow. That would come afterwards. This was just take care of this. Oh, this will be great. I'll eat the apples off the apple tree, and I'll, I'll grab the bananas that are good. And, you know, he, it was a joy. It was a, the, the best job ever. Nothing ever went sour. It just was good. We read in verse 16 that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you can freely eat, but of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So not only did he give an, an he has a, an ideal place to live, he's given an ideal task to perform, he's then given a sacred trust. All of the things under Adam's care he was free to enjoy. Only one thing, if all of that, was reserved for the Lord himself. And Adam was given the necessary opportunity to choose, for he was a morally accountable being. He was made in God's own image. He wasn't a puppet on a string. He wasn't forced to do what he didn't want. He was given a choice. And that tree in the midst of good and evil gave him a choice. Now, there are plenty of people writing about Genesis that will say, well, why does that tree have to be there at all? Things were perfect. Just get rid of that tree and we've got an entirely shorter Bible and a much easier way of life. That's true. But if he has no choice, he's a robot. If he has no choice, you know, <laughs> would, would you really be fulfilled hearing the voice of a doll say to you, I love you so much. Every time you pull the string in its neck, if you said, yes, you need therapy, <laughs> of course you wouldn't be satisfied with that. Genuine freedom to choose always brings with it the potential and the possibility for sin. Freedom comes with risks, but without freedom, there's no relationship. Volition is required for love. Created in the image of God with self-determination in an ideal garden with but one restriction, the spirit, man, living in a body made of dust, must now choose to love God by obeying him in the one commandment he's given. Don't eat of this tree. That's the extent of the battle. The regulation was not stringent and yet was given to him, so his choice to love the Lord would be real. <clears throat> it is interesting to me, and you look at it historically, that wherever the gospel of Jesus has gone in the world and taken root in a country, in an area, that the culture in which it takes root has a tremendous respect for freedom of choice in terms of faith. When it has gone and not been received, there is always following that, that rejection a, a, a loss of individual freedom to choose. Go to communist worlds, look at the way Nazi Germany responded, look at the Islamic states today that, that just oppress and, and take people's freedoms from them. For Adam, the choice and the consequences were clearly laid out, but he had everything he needed and then some, it was just that one tree 
that God said, don't eat, you'll die. <clears throat> and then the Lord said in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper that is comparable to him. It's a startling contrast from everything you've read up to this point. Seven times we read, good, 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 high five, didn't I do a great job? Very good, and now, Adam, such a loser. No, that's not at all what it says. <laughs> I want you to know this important truth, because this is one that you want to keep a hold of. Man was made to share his life. The need for companionship and support was not the result of sin, but was the result of creation. God made Adam this way. God made him with the desire to share his life, that he needed a helper, that he needed someone that he could stand with. That's God's intention. And even in the creation, and nobody's fallen into sin here. We're, we aren't even over to chapter 3 yet. God saw Adam in his perfectly created state and said, this isn't finished. This isn't good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper. Now put yourself in Adam's shoes for a minute. He was in a beautiful garden. There was no heavy lifting, no financial obligations, a job that consisted of watching over things. He got to name all the animals and hang out with God. What's not good about that? Seems like a pie job. This is perfect. From the Lord's view, Adam's life was out of balance. He needed companionship. And not even man's best friend, the dog, could do that for Adam. Adam had a fellowship with God at this point, but he needed someone with whom he could share his life, to be a part of his makeup. And Adam's wife was in the mind of God long before she was in Adam's arms. Marriage was ordained by God to create something he said was not good in creation until it was completed. And he sees both our need to share our lives and the assistance we need to live our lives. And if, if tonight you are single, know that God has a mate picked out for you. And if you're frustrated you haven't found them yet, just wait. The Lord has a way of bringing someone to you. Somebody asked, you think there's only one person made for me? I have no idea. For all I know, there's 12,000 people that get along with you, okay. But I'm asking God for that one, not for the 12,000. I will make a helpmate or a helper comparable to him. Now, you ladies may not like the way this is written. You'd hate to be introduced by your husband and, yes, this is my helper. <laughs> However, it is the same word the Lord uses of himself in Psalm Forty-five, forty-six, forty-six, verse one, where he said, "God is my refuge and my strength; He's a very present help in time of trouble." It's the same word God uses for Himself. So don't be offended, girls. You know God has value and values you certainly the way He values anyone else. Adam is going to need all the help he can give, and the word comparable. Is a, is a reference to stability, to balance. She would fit the bill perfectly. And when God brings them together and makes them one flesh, God saw it, it was very good. We read in verse, where are we at? Verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord uh, 
formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and he brought them to, An, uh, to Adam to see if what he would call them, and whatever Adam called every creature, is that what is, is, it was its name? And so Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper who was comparable to him. Not only was Adam's need known to God, God fostered the understanding of that need in Adam's life. The Lord had Adam exercised intellectually by going to all of God's creation, by the way, not made in his image, just made by the Lord, and as he brought the, the animals before Adam, Adam was to give names to the animals, from aardvark to zebra, I guess, or whatever language he's using. But he had to come up with a lot of names, I can't imagine. Um, in the process, however, and I think this is the important lesson, the Lord taught Adam that every creature has a mate, but he didn't have one. And as superior to the animal kingdom as he was, there was no one in that animal kingdom that would satisfy his need. He needed to have someone created in the image of God. And I think God deliberately in this process awakened in Adam a sense of need, that he began to hunger for companionship. And God never awakens a need in our life or a desire without having, without having a way to fulfill it. So we would do well to wait for him to bring us our mates. <laughs> and mark well this, this truth. God prepared Adam for Eve and then prepared Eve for Adam. But in this process, Adam was sure that there was nothing around him that would meet his needs. And God took him through the process so that he might learn it. Verse 21 tells us, And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And as he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, and remember, Yahweh Elohim, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So the Lord uses this divine anesthetic, puts Adam to sleep. By the way, in Hebrew, the word for rib is the word for side, not rib bone. It just says side, whatever you want to do with that. But it was removed, however it was, to form Eve. Matthew Henry, years ago in his commentary, wrote, Eve was not made from Adam's feet, so he could walk all over her, nor from his head, so he could lord over her, but she was made from under his arm to be protected by him and from near his heart to be loved by him. Beautiful. Verse 24, it tells us the same thing. And Adam says, verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the Lord said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be clinged, uh, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, and the man and the woman were not ashamed. I can imagine Adam groggily waking up from surgery, I don't know how many weeks he spent looking at animals. Please, God, no more aardvarks, pigs, whatever they were. I don't want to see any more of these. And he opens his eyes, and he sees Eve. Eve, what a joy. And he said to the Lord, she shall be called Isha, because she came from Ish. Yeah, that sounds romantic too, doesn't it? 
what follows from verse 24 and verse 25 is the Lord's declaration of marriage and a statement of the purity and holiness of the marriage relationship. They shall become one flesh. This first wedding took place in paradise. It was officiated by the Lord. It left them both with a tremendous joy of intimacy, with no fear of reprisal, of no difficulty, and Adam was finally satisfied. And the Lord saw that it was good. Now, I want to point out to you, at least in verse 24, that the Lord said this love of a husband for a wife would exceed that of a parent for their children or a child for their parents. For this reason, you'd leave your home, the closeness that you had with your mother and father, and you will cleave, literally cleave, to your spouse. This written at a time when no one had parents and no kids had been born. But this would be a love that superseded all else. Sometimes kids get in the way. You should always love them. It should be a good relationship with them. But there's a greater love of all, and that's the love you have for one another as a husband and wife. They should leave. For this reason, they should leave, and they should cleave, and then they can weave. <laughs> leave your mother and father, cleave to your wife, and then weave together two lives to become one. To weave a guy dirty as a gopher with girls who iron paper napkins. I don't know. You know, it's, sometimes they're, they're water and oil. Marriage from God's perspective is the most basic of God's institutions. Well before government, well before church. If the home collapses, so does everything else. And that's why I think it is the enemy's target in every generation. So chapter 1, there's the book of beginnings, the heavens and the earth. Chapter 2, the beginnings of man. He is given choice. He is married and established in what will be a family unit. Chapter 2 ends with the pinnacle of God's creation in a perfect place of God's choosing and design, satisfied and made whole. In a very unique relationship with him in love, he has been given a place to live, a work to do, an ideal wife, and a choice to make. Formed out of the dust of the ground, given spiritual life, he unfortunately, in the very next chapter, will forfeit that life, return to the dust from which he came, and be driven from the garden in sin and in shame. But this is the one that God rested in. This is the work that God was happy with. But now the choice has to be entered in. And even then, God's love will shine through. But that's a story for next week, okay? Father, thank you tonight as we sit together for just giving us this book to study from and to learn about you. So much to take in, so much to, to help us form opinions about life around us, about relationships, about marriage, about sin, about your plans and your, and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you have created the home. You've created men and women to be together as, as one flesh, to have children, to propagate. You've, you've, you've given us a promise that really in turning to Jesus, we would be taken back in many ways to before the fall, where we would know our roles well and we would embrace them as coming from you. And the home could be like it was before Adam and Eve 
die, dove into sin. That, that, that we can have a, a marriage life that is God-honoring and, and Lord shows to the world what God can do in two lives. But Lord, in the beginning, we saw even in this last day that you rested from your labors. What, what you determined to have done was accomplished. And now we just need to have the willingness to choose who we're going to walk with, who we're going to serve, how we're going to get through. That, that Sabbath day rest that you took in the creative process is really meant to be a picture that at some point we have to rest from trying to make our way to you and rest in the fact that you've made your way to us and that we are now saved by the goodness of God, by the grace of God who sent his son. And if tonight your hope for heaven is really dependent upon your accomplishments, you're going to one day be sadly disappointed because God never intended for you to work your way out of this hole. He said, while our feet stood in the miry clay, he picked us up and put our feet upon a rock. That the Lord would deliver us. And that really is what it comes down to. You have a choice now to make. We were born sinful. We sin because we're sinners. You can't teach kids to not sin anymore. You've got to tell them to tell, tell the truth. But you don't have to teach them about lying. They'll do that on their own. It's sin in the heart. But we have a choice now. We can go to Jesus. We don't have to stay in this kingdom of the, of the enemy. We don't have to stay in this life of defeat. We don't have to live with this, this hope for something better that will never come. We can turn to Jesus and know the life that he promises to get. We can be born again. He can give us his new spirit. And he can change our hearts from the inside out. Because he's God. And then he says to us, there's a rest that remains for you. Don't fall short of entering into it. You can, you can rest by coming to me, and I'll give you life. Call upon my name, Jesus said. You'll be saved. And that's really what God's intention are these days. As man has fallen into sin, death has followed. Destruction everywhere. God's intention the same. He wants to have fellowship with you. He made, made you for himself. And if tonight you will invite him to be the Lord of your life, he'll come in and begin that work that only he can do. And then you can rest in his work. If you're here tonight, the pastors will be up front after the service. Come, please, and pray with them before you go home. If you're listening online, would you follow the, the link in the description box below there as to where you're watching? And, and follow that link to the page that will talk to you about what it means to be born again. And then call us tomorrow if you like here at the church. We'd love to have a word with you, just pray with you and encourage you. Just be thankful that, that what you've done, we can know about and we'll rejoice with you at what God has done in your heart. But the picture doesn't change. God is ready to give life to those who will call upon him. He'll be Yahweh, the becoming one. He'll be your Savior and your Redeemer and your Lord. So come. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. 
You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.